to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. If you have a Bible with you or you have a Bible app on your mobile phone, please turn with me to the vicinity of First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. Uh, we're going to jump around in those, um, uh, those letters today. And today we're in part four of this series titled Pillar of Truth. And in this series, we're exploring these three letters that Paul wrote at the end of his ministry to these two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. And he wrote these letters to really encourage them and give them instruction uh, because these two young pastors were sent to cities uh, where there were churches that really needed a lot of help. Timothy was sent to the city of Ephesus and Titus was sent to the island of Crete. And Paul, he gives them instructions to get these churches back on track and to appoint leaders that will carry out the work of sharing the hope and of the gospel of Jesus Christ with future generations. And as a result of that work, you know, we are here today. And uh, in, in, this, in these letters, to, to, in his first letter to Timothy, Paul actually, um, for us, he creates this word picture about the church. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul calls the church the pillar of truth. And, and this is actually an important word picture for us because, because think about this. What is a pillar? Okay. A pillar is actually a structural member that is set on a firm foundation that stands up in defiance of the force of gravity in order to bear up a load or to hold something else up. Okay, a pillar serves a specific function. It's designed to actually stand up in support of something else. And this is a great picture of the church because as Paul says, the church is the pillar of truth, meaning uh, the church is built on a foundation, the, the foundation of the word of God. And, and it is God's appointed instrument that he uses, that he has placed into the world to hold up the truth for all of the world to see. That the church resists the gravitational force that the world is putting on it and, and remains standing upright, holding up the truth of God. And this really, I think for us, is an enormous important idea because we live in a world that's systematically tearing down all the structures of truth around us. We live in a world that has embraced postmodern philosophy. And postmodern philosophy has really been attempting to answer a question that actually was asked by Pontius Pilate nearly 2,000 years ago. In fact, we find uh, that this question in John chapter 18, beginning in verse 37. And this is where Jesus, he's actually already been arrested. He's already been sent before, uh, uh, he's been, been before the the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, and he's been taken to the Roman procurator, uh, Pontius Pilate, and he's talking to Jesus. And outside, this Jewish mob is, is shouting, crucify him. And he's trying to decide whether he should comply with these wishes or not. And then he begins to talk to Jesus, and, and he says, Jesus said, I mean, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate asked probably the most important question any person could possibly ask. He asked Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? Here you have a man standing in the very presence of the author of truth, Asking this foundational question. And in the story, we find out that he didn't even stick around long enough for Jesus to answer 
the question. And, and the world continues to ask this question for, for over 2,000 years. And, and our postmodern culture believes it has the answer. In fact, the central idea of postmodern philosophy is this. All truth is relative. That all truth is relative. All truth is not objective, but it is subjective and relative to something else. And there's no basis whatsoever for objective reality. That there is no firm foundation for truth. Postmodernism believes that the truth is simply what you make it. What truth, what's true for you might not be true for me. It's this idea that truth isn't a real thing that measures reality. Okay, the, 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 the truth is something that is subjective and relative to your experience and your thoughts and your desires and your cultural influences. That, that's what postmodernism is all about. That it's about the, a truth that's founded on the shifting sands of human opinion and emotion and experience instead of the rock-solid foundation of objective reality of God and his word. And this philosophy has affected every part of our life. In fact, in 1992, most people even notice when this happened. In 1992, the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy essentially created a brand new definition of liberty based on this false sense of truth. Okay. Now understand, from at the very beginning of our country, Thomas Jefferson believed and explained that liberty was rooted in a self-evident, objective truth. Okay? In fact, we remember the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. For, so Jefferson, the truth was apparent. It was, it was obvious. A truth was objective and real. Truth stood alone. And truth was founded on an objective standard. And it didn't change with cultural whims or political climates or opinion and time. But 200 years later, Kennedy, you know, with a different understanding of truth, wrote, at the heart of liberty is the right, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Anthony Kennedy said that at the heart of liberty is the right, the established human right to define for ourselves or to decide for ourselves our own concept of what it means to exist. And not only that, but that we have the ability to define for ourselves our own concept of meaning and value and importance. And we have that right to define our own meaning of the entire universe and our own meaning of the mystery of human life. And I don't know if you realize that, but this is a staggering statement because, because what Anthony Kennedy is saying here is none of these things, none of these big things are based on an unbiased, objective truth, that they are all based on personal definitions. What is truth? It's what you decide for it to be. You see, the statement like this, Anthony Kennedy, he, he's completely setting aside any notion of a real objective truth. He replaces a truth with, with something that's completely subjective and individual to each person. Truth is simply a matter of choice. Truth isn't a real absolute thing in, in an absolute sense. Truth is, is, is real, but, but it's only real because a person chooses to believe that it's real. That's a radical shift in our cultural thinking, and the results have been devastating in our culture, because the truth is, this relativism, you know, that, that I can be, believe and be what I want to be just because I believe it, people are, are, are actually stepping off out of the bounds of reality, like this person right here. This person right here believes that he is becoming a reptile, okay? okay? And, and they call him the dragon lady, and I say him because he's biologically a man, 
Okay, but he denies that reality of being a man and at one point has been transgendered into a female. And now he is attempting to go beyond transgender and is trying to go trans species. Okay, he is trying to change his species. He's attempting to become like, like a reptile in honor of his supposed reptile parents who took care of him when he was abandoned in the desert by his biological parents. Okay, and so not only has this man had sex reassignment surgery he, to, to make him anatomically female, he's had extensive tattoo work done, and he's had implants under the skin to produce this reptile-like horns and structures on his face, and he re recently had his nose altered and his ears completely removed so that he would be more reptile-like. And all of this is done in a denial of the objective truth of his gender and of, of the objective truth that he is a human being. And as bizarre as this is, our heart should break for this man. Because what kind of brokenness does one have to experience to resort to this kind of self-mutilation in order to try to live in some alternate reality? The emotional and psychological pain must be catastrophic to drive this person to this. And what's worse is our world doesn't seek to help or, or weep for them. Okay, our world celebrates this. Our world celebrates people like this and lifts them up as heroes instead of understanding how broken they are and having compassion on them and working to help them through their brokenness. The world just lauds them for their denial of real objective truth and it encourages that denial. But that's just not even the darkest side of postmodern thought. Postmodern thought and relativism of the truth has led to the systematic death of over 50 Eight million children since 1973. Okay. You see, objective scientific truth points to a human life being a human life at the moment of conception. Objective scientific truth says a baby is a baby in the womb and is still a human baby. And objective biblical truth says that baby has value. But relative truth, based on postmodern thought, okay, says that all that is irrelevant because human life has no value as long as a mom says it has no value value. And as long as abortion is performed um, somewhere before the state mandated cutoff point in the pregnancy, regardless of the fact that science has actually proven that the child is still a human child and that, the, that, that this human child feels pain, the killing of that child is perfectly legal because of subjective truth and what it says. In fact, subjective truth says it's not a child, it's just a massive tissue, regardless of what the science objectively has to say. That is the fruit of postmodern philosophy and the idea that the truth is relative and that the truth is based on how I feel. And that's just the tip of the iceberg because this philosophy affects almost everything in our culture from business to education to ethics to art. All of these things are heavily influenced by this notion that the truth is relative. Even the church, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And postmodernism says the truth is what you decide for it to be. But perhaps the most devastating consequence of this kind of thinking is this full sense of security that comes with a relative truth. Because if the truth is relative, then guess what? I'm a good person. Okay? I'm a good person relative to other people. And that's what matters. Right? I'm not a bad person. I'm not as bad as the other people, which means I'm a good person. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'm good, right? And because God's a loving God and he's, going, he's then going to accept me regardless of what I've done and regardless of what some religious doctrines and teachings say about it. Because really, doctrines, what are they? Just accept, accepted truths that were relative to a particular culture in time that aren't relevant anymore. 
And so what is true for me is I'm a good person. And on that basis, I'm not going to be condemned when I die because God's a loving God. You see, postmodern thought and this relative truth has cost the lives of not only 58 million babies in America, but it's also cost the souls of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world because they have this bought in this idea that the truth is relative, right? What is true for you isn't true for me. And guess what? All truth is relative. And because it's all relative, it all leads to God anyway. But let me just be very honest with you. The truth is absolutely not relative. The truth is absolutely objective and real because the author of truth itself is objective and real. And the truth is what God says it is. And God has revealed his truth to us in nature and he's also revealed his truth to us through his holy word. And it is on the foundation of the word of God that God has set up the pillar of truth, the church, to lift high this truth of God for the world to see. The church is God's chosen instrument to lift up the truth and display the truth for the world around us to see. And as the world seeks to tear down any firm foundation of the truth, the church stands firm, unmovable, unshakable, lifting up the truth for this bro uh, broken and lost world. And so that's the word picture that Paul paints uh, for the church. It's being a pillar of truth. It's really a perfect analogy uh, because that is what the, tr the truth is. The church is the visible manifestation of Christ in the world, the, the truth of God in the world. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I'm writing to you so that you may know how the people in the church should behave. Okay, because guess what? The church isn't a building. The church isn't something. The church is the people. You and I are the church. We are this pillar of truth. We are told, you know, we, we are to hold the truth high up for the world to see. And because of that, Christ followers, those who make up the church, ought to live in a way that demonstrates and, and is consistent with and, and is in alignment with this truth of God. That's why Paul wrote the letters to Timothy and Titus. He's encouraging and instructing them to build up and strengthen the church and those in the church so that they can live and behave in a way that demonstrates the truth of God is real for the rest of the world. And these letters written nearly 2,000 years ago really have a lot uh, to teach the church today about truth and being the pillar of truth in this postmodern culture. And that's why we're actually in this series. In fact, in the first week, we began talking about the, the first two major themes that, that Paul addresses in the letter. And the very first one was the theme of doctrine. Okay, Paul talks a lot about doctrine in these, these three letters. And, and doctrine is not some abstract theological word. Doctrine is simply what it means is it means teachings. And what Paul is talking about here in this letter, you know, he's talking about the teachings of the church because the teachings of the church or the doctrines of the church are the critical foundation of all that is Christian. Christianity. All of Christianity is built on these doctrines because the way that you learn about Christ is through doctrine. The way that we pass down our faith about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ from one generation to the, to the next is through doctrine and teaching. And so Paul tells us, he tells these two pastors that they are to guard and they're to protect and they're to teach and they're to learn and they're to, to continue to, to share sound or true doctrine. They're to teach sound doctrine and they are to confront and rebuke and correct anyone Anyone who is teaching a different doctrine or a false doctrine, they are to teach objective truth of God. 
Because this truth, this doctrine leads to life and false doctrine leads ultimately to death. And then in the second week, we talked about the the second major theme, which is the fruit of doctrine. The fruit of sound doctrine, as we discussed, the fruit or the result of this sound teaching, all right, and learning and believing sound doctrine is life and ultimately freedom. The result of believing the truth about God is life and freedom. And that life and freedom then leads to transformation inside of us, which ultimately results in all of us growing in obedience and right action. The truth of God, true doctrine always leads to an internal change. The truth changes us and it change, that change leads to a visible uh, change in, in the world around us. It changes our actions. Sound doctrine always, as we've said, leads to right action. And then last week we talked about the fact that if we're really part of the church and we really believed in Christ and his teachings, then we would, it would lead to that right action. And those actions would begin to cause us as individuals and as a church to stand out in the world in complete contrast to the world. Because this world is, is broken and it lives mainly by a relative truth. And the broken world lives by a truth that produces more brokenness and, and pain and death. But we are the church, the body of Christ, founded on an objective truth of God, being full of hope and full of the gospel. We should stand out and start contrast as the rest of the world. We should be completely different than the world. Okay? We, we, we should be the most obedient and the most loving and the most gracious and the most compassionate people in the entire world. And the world should see us and our good works as completely far and away different than what they are. And the world should be drawn to Christ because of that difference. Because we are the body of Christ. We are the church. We are the pillar of truth holding up the hope of Christ for the world to see. Now, now today, what I want to do is what I'd hope to do um, in this part of the series is I actually hope to just kind of connect the dots uh, for you. Because, because this is what we have. Is we have... With these bullet points, these dots, these outline points from these letters. And, and, um, and we have some things to fill in because so far what we've talked about is doctrine or teaching, the fruit of doctrine or the right action that comes from, you know, believing doctrine. And then we, what we talked about is this visible real world contrast that results, you know, in this right action, okay? And, and these points that we have, um, you know, they, they're there, but, it's, but there's still something to fill in here. And what I want to talk to you about today actually connects the dots between these three for you. Um, because, because in these three letters, there's an idea. There's a concept in these three letters that actually connects these three points together. Uh, and it's an idea that's, that's born out of sound doctrine, it, and it brings you to right action, and the result of, is, is a church that's standing in contrast to the rest of the world, like a radiant city on a hill for all the world to see. There's a, there's a practical idea that connects all of these three things together, and this idea is called eusebia. Eusebia. It's, it's a Greek word that, that Paul uses in these three letters. And, and he uses this word over and over and over again. And, and, and it's this word that represents really the heart of Christian life. Eusebia. Okay? Eusebia is, is, is the heart of Christian life. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christian and, and to be a church. And it's this idea that is actually so radical that if you will apply this to your life, it will literally transform everything in your life. It will transform how you live. It will transform your closeness to God. It will transform your relationships. 
It'll transform your marriage and your relationships to your kids. It'll transform your work and and your attitude uh, about work. It will transform your friendships. It will transform the way that you see the world. And it will absolutely transform the way the world sees you. In fact, if you apply this one thing to to your life, you will walk in true doctrine and you will naturally live out right action and you will stand out in the world like a radiant beacon of hope for all those around you to see. The idea you say by ah, it connects all three of these things together. And this idea that we're talking, it's going to be the idea that we're talking about today. And, and this word, this idea you say by ah, okay, it gets translated into English as a word that you and I have heard many, 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 many times before. In fact, we've actually said this word multiple times in the last few weeks as we have read the scriptures, but we, we tend to overlook it and we tend to miss it. And we miss it because we think we know what this word means. And I promise you, most of us don't know what it means, or, or, or at least we don't understand the power of this word if we apply it to our life. The truth is, if we confuse this, we, we tend to confuse this word with other words that we don't, and we don't fully understand what scripture is teaching us when we actually see this word. But today I want to teach you, I want to teach you this word and I want to teach you what it means. And I want to teach you how to apply it to your life so that you can live the life that God's calling you to live as the pillar of truth. And so this word you say by ah is translated into English as this word right here, godliness. It's godliness or godly, you know, in relation to a godly life, okay? Okay. And, 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 and it's used over and over and over again by Paul in these, th- these three letters. And most of us think that we know what this word means. But reality, I don't think we fully grasp what all this word entails. And the reason why I believe that is because I, until recently, had a very difficult misconception about this word. I thought I knew what it meant, but I didn't. And I've asked other people what they thought this word meant. And just like me, they have had some misunderstandings about, they've had feelings of what it means, but they really didn't understand what it meant. In fact, most people think when they think of godliness, they think of the word righteousness right along with it. As if godly, you know, like a godly life, they think about a righteous life. Okay, I know I did. That's what I thought. I thought that godliness was a synonym for righteousness. And though godliness and righteousness are related, they actually are not the same idea. Okay. In fact, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 points out these things are different by listing them as separate ideas. Paul says, but as for you, O man, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The reality is righteousness and godliness are two completely different ideas. They, they certainly are connected to each other, but they are different ideas altogether. And, and let me just tell you, I was wrong for a long time about what I thought godliness is. I really didn't know what it meant. And so when I read the Bible to pursue righteousness and godliness, how am I supposed to pursue godliness when I don't know what it really is? When the Bible says that Jesus came to bring salvation and to train us to live upright, godly lives, how am I supposed to live an upright, godly life if I don't know what godly means? You see, righteousness actually means just or straight or right. Okay, to be righteous is to be in right standing with God. Jesus, because of his sacrifice, made us righteous before God. As, as the song goes, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become his righteousness. Okay? 
We have a right standing with God because of Jesus. We are right in the eyes of the Lord because of the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus. And when Paul tells us to pursue righteousness, he's saying that we need to pursue lives that reflect that right standing. We need to live in a way that is just and, and it is right. And for many years, I thought that's what godliness meant. I thought godliness meant living in a way that's just and right before God. But actually, godliness is more foundational than that. In fact, godliness should lead to living righteousness. Because godliness is actually more to the point. You see the word eusebia gets translated as godliness. But it's best defined as this. The manner of life that is centered on God. Godliness is living in a way that is centered on God. And the key word there is centered. Okay, So a godly life is a life that's centered or focused on or consecrated and concentrated on none other than God. You see, the focus of the entire word and all that it represents is in fact God himself. It is all about God. To pursue godliness is to pursue a life that is focused and centered on God himself. It is the idea of being completely and totally devoted to God in every part of your life. To be devoted to God in heart, in mind, in soul, in strength, in all that you have, and all that you are, every part of your life completely centered on God. In fact, one author says um, this. He goes, godliness is the manner of life that is centered on God with special uh, reference to devotion, piety, and reverence toward him. It can be defined, he says, as the conjunction of an attitude of devotion to God and of the consequent right conduct. Now, let me just kind of repeat that for you. He says it's the conjunction or the connection between an attitude of devotion, which is a heart that's centered on God, and the consequent or resulting right conduct, a life centered on God. You see, it's an attitude and a heart that follows an action. You see, godliness, having the heart that's centered on God and living a life that's centered on God is, is what connects all of these dots together. Because true doctrine always points back to God. True doctrine always leads us back to the Lord. The focus of true doctrine and the focus of the truth is always, always God. True doctrine tells us about his goodness and his love and his mercy and grace and righteousness. True doctrine tells us how we fall short and how badly we need him. True doctrine shows us how to become in right standing with him through Jesus Christ. True doctrine tells us how, how to love and obey and to worship him. True doctrine always points to God. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And see, in this Paul says that sound doctrine and, and teaching of Jesus Christ accords with Godliness, or in other words, godliness comes from or is connected to sound doctrine. That's what he's saying here. Is sound doctrine leads to godliness. In, in, in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul identifies himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, several other English translations actually render this verse this way. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to build up the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads 
to godliness. Doctrine, right teaching, if believed and applied to our lives, leads to godliness. It leads to right action. Because the truth of doctrine, when properly understood, inspires the believer to do something about it. It inspires the believer to take action, specifically to center one's heart and one's life and identity on God, which leads to a life that honors and glorifies God. That is a godly life. That is the godly life that is radically different from the rest of the world. And it stands in stark contrast with all of the rest of the world. Godliness is what connects these dots together. Doctrine and fruit of doctrine and contrast. It flows out of doctrine. It inspires right action. And it shows us up as a bright light in a dark world. Godliness is a heart centered on God that leads to a life centered on God. That's, and that's, that life centered on God should cause us to radiate and to shine out in the world, a light for Jesus out in the darkness. And, and not because we're compelled to do that because of the law, but instead as a natural consequence of having our hearts and our minds centered on Christ. You see, Paul says in, in Timothy uh, says to Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Okay, He says, train yourself for godliness, which means to work for it, to train yourself for godliness. And then he says, for while, the bod- for while bodily is- training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. Godliness, a, a life that's centered on God has value in the life to come in heaven, but also in the life that we have here. And then he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, okay, godliness, we toil and strive. We work hard for godliness and a godly life. And then he says, because we have our hope set on the living God who is a savior of all people, especially those who believe. And notice what he says. He says, he says we need to train, you need to train yourself and you need to work hard for godliness because, because it has value and it's profitable for this life, not just the next life. Okay? And, and we ourselves toil and strive and work hard for godliness, not because we have to and not because we're trying to earn something. We work hard because we already have our hope set on God. Our hope should inspire us to live a godly life. We don't work hard for godliness so God will accept us. We work hard for godliness because God is worthy. We work hard for godliness because God has already accepted us. We already have hope in him. We want to honor that and be pleasing to him. And it's because of that hope we work hard and we train ourselves for godliness. We want to live lives pleasing to God, centered on God, because we already have hope. And what's more is this godliness has huge practical value for us, not in just the life to come, but in this life right here, right now. In fact, Paul says that, 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 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with a contented life is great gain. Why? Why is godliness great gain? Why is it valuable in this life? Because out of godliness comes the other things. All right? When your heart is centered on God and your life is focused on God, when your life is already oriented then towards the author of joy and hope and peace, right? 
That's where love and joy and hope and peace come from. They come from God. And when your heart and your mind and your life are focused and centered on God, you are in the closest possible proximity to the author of those things. And you will experience those things in the greatest fullness when you're closest to God. The greatest joy comes from closeness with God. The greatest peace comes from that closeness that we have with God. The greatest love is possible if we love the way that we're supposed to love in a relationship with God. And not only that, your life, when it's centered on God, that righteousness that we're talking about, doing the just and right thing, those become a natural consequence. We automatically do those. Righteousness follows out of godliness. Because when you are devoted in heart and action towards God, doing the right thing just comes natural. And not only that, things like steadfastness and gentleness and kindness and, 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 and self-control, all of those things come out of, li- of a life that's marked by godliness. When your mind and your heart are focused on God and when you're living for him, these things come natural as a byproduct. Godliness is the catalyst of all of these other things that we strive for. That's why Paul says to pursue it, to train yourself for it. If it has value for this life, and, and, and there's much to be gained in this life, and, and in the next also because of it, Jesus came to save us and to train us to live in it, to live upright, godly lives. And so the question becomes is, how do we get it? How do we get godliness? How do we pursue it? How do we train ourselves for it? What, what, what can we do in this life to have that godly life? You know, how do we obtain that God-centered life that we're talking about? Well, number one, you have to begin with the word of God. Because for the Christian, the very source of objective truth, the very source of doctrine is in fact the Bible. Okay? You cannot have godliness without the word of God because without the word of God, you cannot possibly know what a heart and uh, heart centered and life centered on God actually looks like. Because if you could have a godly life without the word of God, then the world would already be godly. But let me just tell you, it's not. Because this world runs after a truth that is relative, a truth that has no firm foundation. It runs after a truth that does not lead to a life focused on God. It leads to a life focused on me. That's where the world is. But the word of God, on the other hand, is the source of all real objective truth. It's a source of, of life-giving doctrine. You cannot have godliness without the word of God. And that means for you and me simply this. If you're not in the word... If you're not in the word regularly, you're just simply not pursuing a godly life. You are not seriously training yourself for godliness. You are not actively following God where he wants you to go. Okay? He makes it clear he wants you to live an upright, godly life. And if you're not in the word of God on a regular basis, you're not pursuing a godly life. You have no idea what a godly life looks like until you get into the word of God. So you must get into the word and stay in the word. And then, so the number one, in pursuit of a godly life, you must be in the word. Number two, you must be in prayer. Paul says, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
You see, being in prayer is the other side of the conversation. It is how we communicate back to God. It's how you focus your mind and your attention back on God. It's how you ask him to strengthen you to live for him. It's how you, you ask him to give you favor with those around you. Paul says, pray for all people, especially those in power, so we can, we can live peacefully, lives centered on God. Prayer is also the place where you go to seek grace and the mercy that you need because you will need grace and mercy as you continue on in this life because you will fail at times to live for God. We all will fail at some point to live for God. We need his grace and his mercy daily. Prayer draws us into that. That's why prayer is so important. So you need to be in the word. You need to be in prayer. And then number three, you need to commit your whole life to godliness. Because in this same text, Paul says, he says, I urge you, urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. And notice this, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this is important because I believe that there are Christians who, who, who try to live a godly life. Okay, and they, they, they try to live, you know, a godly life in specific areas of their life. They, they, they make, you know, God the focus of their life in certain areas of their life only. Most Christians will tend to focus, you know, their church life on God. Okay? And many Christians will focus their home life and their family life on God. Because most Christians, but, but most Christians don't focus their heart and mind totally on God in every part of their life. Many Christians who love God and worship him simply refuse to make him the center of their hearts and their minds at work. And I know this for a fact because many of them, you know, uh, they go to work and they behave completely different at work than they do anywhere else. These are people who are loving Christians at church and at home and they go to work and they're insubordinate and they're trash talkers and they're angry and profane and hateful and joyless and they just downright mean even to their Christian co-workers and even their Christian bosses. They're the exact opposite of what godliness looks like. I think we all know that's true. Right? That is not a godly life, because a godly life is an entire life with all of its pieces centered on God, where God reigns completely supreme. And for many Christians, their social lives, that's an area that God does not reign supreme. Oh, they will tell people about Jesus a little bit, and they'll talk that they're Christians, but they'll refuse to talk about sin, and they'll refuse to talk about judgment, and they'll refuse to talk about grace, and they refuse to talk about sacrifice. But instead, in social situations, they'll look just like their friends and their family, doing all the things that the world does from partying and flirting and slandering and even acts of violence. And for those things that the Christian won't do themselves, that, that maybe because they're inappropriate or, or just too far across the line, they will still actually laugh at their friends and family doing these things instead of actually standing up and pointing out their error saying, I love you, but I can't go along with that because that's wrong. In a sense, these Christians are condoning that behavior. For many Christians, this is an issue. They just simply don't have this part of their life centered on God. It's like we live in these separate identities. And for others, it's their financial lives because they just refuse to make God the focus of their money and their resources. Jesus is the Lord of their life in everywhere except for their money. And for others, it's about their recreation and hobbies, Right? They have these harmless recreation and hobbies that become passions and they become the focus of their life instead of God. 
And if we're going to seriously pursue God in the way that he calls us to, we need to pursue it in every single part of our lives. We need to live godly lives in every possible way, at work, at church, at home, at school, around our friends and family, around our enemies, in every possible way. And then finally, we need fellowship. We need to be in fellowship. We need brothers and sisters in our lives who are pursuing the same. They're pursuing a godly life. We need people in our lives that, that, that we can read the word of God with. We need people in our lives that we can pray for and pray with and have them pray for us. We need people in our lives, fellow Christians, that we can turn to in all of these parts of our lives to encourage us to live for God in every part of our lives. We need each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to confront each other. We need to remind each other that, that the heart of Christian life, that the very heart of Christian life is you say by godliness, a heart and mind and life focused on God, a life totally focused on God, a life intentionally lived for the glory of God. That is how we pursue godliness. That's how we train ourselves to live godly lives. It's not a mystery, right? It never is, right? We get in and stay in the word. We stay connected in prayer. We commit all of our life for godliness and we stay connected to one another with like-minded believers encouraging each other toward godliness. And if we will do that and walk in this, our lives will change in unimaginable ways. And we will reap the benefits, as Paul says, of godliness in this life and also the life to come. And then we will, as a church, will be built up and strengthened as the pillar of truth. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just praise you for the intricacies of, of your glorious word. I praise you for your love and kindness and, and grace. That you have had so much grace on me for all these years, not even knowing what a simple word means. But Lord, I just pray that you'd help me to do exactly what that word is, is to center my life completely on you. That there wouldn't be a part of my life that I would hold from you. That in all my relationships, in all of my actions, in all of my doings, in all the things that, that, that I just want to hold on to where I can harbor bitterness and anger, that would just release it all and let you to be the center and the focus of every part of my life. Because Lord, I want to please you. I want to honor you. And the reason why I want to do that is not because I'm trying to be obedient to make you like me. You rescued me. That's the mystery for me. But because you rescued me out of gratitude, I love you with all my heart. I want to be obedient that way. I want to live the life that you're calling me to live. And I just pray, Father, that you'd pierce all of our hearts by your word to do the same thing. That we'd be convicted to live centered on you. That we'd live, we'd live centered on you in, at home and, and out in town. And the way that we drive, that, 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 that our lives would be centered on you when we're driving so that we would be mindful of the way we treat people, even those ones that cut us off. Lord, that I, I pray that we'd be mindful in the way that, that, that we, we live our lives, you know, out in public and in, and in private when we're alone and no one's out around to watch. That, that we would be mindful of how we live our life for you at work, around our coworkers and our bosses. That we'd be mindful in, in how we, we handle ourselves at school 
and how we'd be mindful in, in the way that we just interact with each other at the restaurant, here in town, on Facebook, in every possible way, Lord, that we'd be mindful to live for you in your glory, supreme over our own. And I pray, Father God, this would be something that would stick in our hearts and stay in us. And Lord, that we would grow to become the pillar of truth that you're calling us to, that this church would shine like a beacon of hope in this community and that you would raise up a people in this church who are passionate for your name and would go out and storm the gates of hell this week. I love you and I praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.